Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 10 of Confessions of a Market Maker. I'm your co-host, Ray, a.k.a. All Day Ray, a.k.a. Antonio Brown's Life Coach. And I'm joined here by my jovial co-host, who goes by Trader one on Twitter, a man who spent 20 years pickpocketing retail traders and spending that money on Rolexes he never wore, the director <laughs> of Dirty Tricks, a.k.a. Larry the Liquidator. I'm referring to JJ. JJ, how's it going? Hey, Ray. How you doing? Jeez. <laughs> These introductions, man, I tell you. Oh, man. I'm just glad. Like my goal, my goal is to always get a chuckle out of you or the guest. And I know <laughs> I did my job. So <laughs> that's pretty good. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, and uh, yeah, man, our guest today um, is nothing short of a renaissance man. Hedge fund manager, film producer, high stakes poker player, author, founder of the Thirst Lounge, a man with more philosophies than Socrates, <laughs> Mr. Die with Zero. AKA Gas Trader. I'm talking about Bill Perkins. Bill, how's it going, man? Going great. Thanks for having me on. Oh man, abs- absolutely, man. No, I gotta, I gotta borrow some of your intros. I'm gonna start doing that. With the- <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that that that, uh, that makes me feel good, Bill. Thanks, thanks for the compliment. Um, and you know, I uh, I just wanted to bring up, man, before we really get into it, man, that uh, that baby blue suit that you wore with the with the beret at the Triton final table. Yeah. yeah, that was fresh, man. I, I was really. Yeah, that, thank you. Thank you. That was like a. La- I was running around just before that day. You know, I was like, well, I might make the final table. I don't really wear suits, so I'll just buy one in London. They have suits. And I was running around early in the morning. Saw that in the window. I was like, that's the suit. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, that was good, that's what I was wondering. I was like, did he know? Like, did you like come prepared for that? Or was that a last minute thing? So no, that, no, that was a last minute scramble. I, I even put it on my Instagram story. I was running around and, you know, I ran to Harrods, their department store and other two places. And it was right in a suit store right next to where the venue was. Right where, where the poker event. I, I picked oh. it up there. Wow, so we got a, a tailor on it fresh to make the length, uh, you know, real quick to get the uh, length and everything right. So it didn't look too goofy. And uh, I think it worked. It did. No, no, it, it did. It did for sure. And um, yeah, man, how was it? You know, just while we're on the, the topic of Triton, you know, I, I saw a lot of, you know, the big name players were like really praising it. I'm, I'm assuming you had a great time there. I had a blast. I, I think it was a really great format because the format, um, you know, enticed the business and the recreational player, which I am to come out and play, mm-hmm. uh, which, which is really hard to do because, they, you know, they, we know there's sharks out there and we like battling with them, but it's, it's better when, you know, there's more fish. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right. Like, exactly. and so, you know, our egos get in the way and we're like, well, I can beat the other fish at least. So maybe I have a shot. And so we, we all showed up and, and, you know, I was one of the fish that made the final table. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that was, that was a, it was a fun sweat. It was just a fun, fun time watching all the, like really all the, the, uh, the streams on there. And um, yeah, yeah, I just want to thank you again for coming on. You know, like when we first uh, made this podcast, you were like one of the first, you know, like the ideal guests I had in my head, you know, because you, you cross over from both me and JJ's worlds. Um, so we're glad you're here. Um, and with that said, I know there's, there's probably a good percent of our audience, uh, Bill, who doesn't know who you are. So do, do you mind just sharing a few things about yourself? Yeah, I guess so. Um, I live in the U.S. Virgin Islands. I started as a Assistant, assistant, assistant peon on the Mercantile Exchange way back in the day when there was a Merc, right? When there was open outcry trading. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of, uh, you know, moved up the ranks and became, uh, went to an options trading 
firm called Czar Securities. Uh, actually, Czar Commodities back in the day, not securities. And, um, you know, I learned options. And then from there, I went to an over-the-counter broker. And then I moved to Houston in the 90s. I think it was 95, back when uh, natural gas became deregulated. And they were looking for people who understood uh, trading and financial options, et cetera, to come on down. So there was this big suck of talent from New York to Texas to come down. And from there, uh, I worked at a company called El Paso Energy and uh, a Norwegian firm. But then uh, John Arnold, when Enron blew up, um, I was actually not working. Um, I was trading on my own. And John's like, I'm going to start this hedge fund. And I was like, well, I'm trying to develop this LNG project in Central America. Right. So I was in I was in El Salvador going back and forth to El Salvador. But I was like, if you pay me X percent. I'll come work there, you know? And he's like, done. I'm like, okay, done. And so I was allowed to like, basically, I was never technically an employee. I was like a consultant, but I traded there. I had a book. It was like this weird relationship. But, um, you know, and Centaurus was the most successful hedge fund full stop, I think, in commodities trading, in the history of commodities trading. And, uh, you know, I did very well there. Uh, it was a great time to be a natural gas fundamental trader. And uh, since then, John, you know, called in rich one day, he retired, decided he wanted to do philanthropy and, 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 you know, try and change the world in his, in his way and make it better. And uh, two funds came out of that. My fund called Skylar Capital Resources and another fund called Copperwood. Cool. Cool. Good and, deal. You know, I'm in between there and that timeline, you know, I've made some 10 movies or produced 10 movies. I have a full production. I play poker. I do some wacky stuff and some fun stuff trying to have a full life, but we, you can ask the questions and I'll tell you what they are. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, absolutely. Um, you know, I'm going to leave the, uh, the hedge fund questions for JJ here in a bit. Um, but I, I do want to get your thoughts on, you know, retail trading, you know, as in like individual traders, people trading from home. Um, have you had experience talking to like retail traders? Yeah, I have. You know, I had a brief stint where Czar Commodities decided back in when So's small order execution mm-hmm. going on. And um, they we, we did a foray into like, you know, retail individual traders trading at a broker dealer shop. Right. And um, a lot of it was like having a live line to the S&P futures pit, which was open outcry at the time. And and trading a particular stock and using the momentum in the uh, futures pit along with what was going on in that stock to trade quickly in and out. Um, nowadays, that's all done by robots and machines faster than you can do it, right? Exactly. Uh, so, you know th- that kind of died that kind of died out f- from the way we were approaching it. And it, it's a different it's a different style of trading too. Um, um, you know, once you're not really kind of like getting in front of the arbitrage of the machines with the S&P futures move, moves. Um, it's a lot of technical trading. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, that wasn't really my area of expertise. And what I, what I get into, I'm a, I'm a fundamental trader. So my positions are generally, you know, weeks, months, or a season. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it was kind of outside my area of expertise. And I was just like, let me, let me stick with what I know, you know, options and, and trading futures, you know. It's, uh, it's interesting because that SOS. I, I had so many buddies of mine who were market makers, and and they hated SOS because 
you know, they'd keep getting sosed and, and they wouldn't even notice that they were getting short something. And next thing you know, their inventory was short and they'd have to, you know, and then the sows guys would run it up and sell it back into them. So yeah. stuff like that was interesting. Yeah, it was an interesting game for a while. We were a little late to the game, and you know, and, and then we, you know, we got out of it. And, and luckily I did. I went on to, you know, do very well trading natural gas options and commodities. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, so, so Bill, do you um, you get people that like come up to you and they're like, "Hey, like uh, I want to trade for a living." Like, do you get that? And do you give them like what type of advice would you give to somebody? Yeah, I get I get it a lot. Usually, it's specific to you know. I usually like w- w- what specifically about trading? You know, um, you want to trade equities or commodities? And usually, it's people like I want to do energy trading or I want to trade this. And it's like, do you have a spot? And generally, we don't. And so. My guidance is usually what orga- what organizations could they get into that would give them a, a toehold where they can learn and and run a book and, and get experience and actually trade, right? And a lot of it's just pester the fuck out of these guys, right? Like exactly. here's the guy <laughs> and pester the guy and find the guy and guy and guy guy. You know what I mean? Like a lot of you'd be surprised how how that works in some of these organizations. But like, oh, fine, we just give the guy a shot. You know what I mean? He seems bright enough. You know. That, that's how I got my first job. Yeah. That, that actually <laughs> happened with me. Like I, I got an intro to be assistant, assistant PM, but everybody wanted to be assistant, assistant PM to get their chance. And I thought I had a job, but I didn't. I would like come stand out in front of the exchange like three days in a row. Like when, when are they going to take me up and do the interview or whatever? And on the third day, uh, Bob Rossi finally took me up and uh, tore up my resume, threw it on the floor. And it was like, you know, you don't need that shit here. <laughs> and when he did that, I was, like, I was like, I love this fucking place. Like there was all these people yelling and screaming and, 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 and oh. like, I, they looked like bums to me. I was like, exactly. and I was like, wait, if these bozos could be millionaires, I could be a millionaire too. You know what I mean? Like that, that was like kind of delusions of grandiosity back then, which luckily came true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good stuff. So, 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 Bill. So, I, you know, I'm looking to, uh, you know, transition into a different career. And so, you know, like when I first was thinking about this, you know, I started Google searching, you know, like good careers for poker players. And you know, I found trading, day trading. That's what was primarily coming up. Um, you know, people always say there's synergy synergy between the two. And so, what skills, you know, for myself that I learned from poker are going to serve me, you know, learning to be a profitable trader. And then on the flip side, are there any potential downsides in me having a poker background? I think your understanding of risk reward and bankroll management will help you a lot, right? Like mm-hmm. you've been exposed to these concepts of risk reward, variance, et cetera, so that, you know, you know, things like the Kelly criterion, like you don't want to risk certain amount of money on small margin bets, right? Like you, basically your bet size is commensurate with your confidence on, on how the bet risk loss limits. And also, Really, what I tell people is like at the end of the day, it's a psycholo- it's a, a psychology test, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, and and what I mean by that is, is that, and I, I think you may have heard me say this before, is that they've done studies where the average human being needs like five to seven positive events for one negative event, right? Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they're 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 miserable, right? They're out of balance. And as a trader, you that cannot be true, right? Because you know if you're a 60% right trader, you're a god. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so and so that means 40, you know, the guy who's a god has 40% of his days being bad days. Well, if he needs, you know, a ratio of one to five or one to seven, he's just gonna fall apart. Like a, you know what I mean, like a cheap suit, right? He's just gonna un- unravel and he won't be able to handle 
the psychology of having that many bad days, right? And he won't think rationally and, you know, get emotional and attach to trades and not get out when he's supposed to get out and all these other, all, you know, the death spiral that happens. And you probably have seen that in poker happen to certain people when a bad beat happens or a variance happens, whatever, and they just go on a spiral, right? And, oh, yeah. And so at the end of the day, I, I think it's more about your constitution, your mental constitution, your psychological constitution, more than your mental acuity. Okay. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, because there's tons of smart professors who can't trade. They're way smarter than me, but they can't trade. They couldn't handle it. Right, 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 for sure. Because, you know, it was interesting because me, I I think it was last podcast or maybe the one before, like me and JJ were, um, you know, talking about this topic. And, and, um, you know, that's that's what I was saying. I was like, hey, you know, my ability to handle risk coming from that that background, I think is going to serve me well in learning how to trade. And then I was talking about like my uh, my almost like my threshold for pain. And then he brought up that, hey, that maybe that might not be a good a good thing. So do you, do you see any like downsides to coming from a poker background potentially? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think it depends on how you've been trained in poker, right? If you've been trained well in terms of bankroll management, risk reward, when to, when to cut out, when, like, when, when can you analyze yourself and say, you know what, I am not thinking properly right now. Right. Or even if I'm thinking properly, it's just time to stop for bankroll management reasons, right? Risk reasons. And and actually, early in my trading career, that was like kind of the biggest, my biggest downfall was like, I was like all in. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what? <laughs> Risk be damned, right? And, and so as I've grown and matured as a trader and I have other investors, mainly they're like, you know, this is kind of the risk profile they want. I need to adhere to this. I can't necessarily hammer the way I used to uh, and do those things. So you know, that, that poker mentality, like, fuck it, I'm all in, I don't care. You know, you need to like kind of table that. And so that you, you know, get the maximum yield of dollars that you can get out of the market. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just, just, yeah. Just come in, uh, discipline and t- taking, yeah, no, no, that's what I told you. I've always felt I've always been more conservative and maybe to a fault with my bankroll management, uh, et cetera. Um, and, and so, uh, so Bill, so, uh, moving on, like there's a question I, you know, I always ask myself and it probably doesn't serve me, uh, to be honest, but you know, I find it interesting. Uh, what do you think has more variance for the individual poker or trading? Ooh, um, how it's skill based, right? Like, I think that there are trading strategies out there, you know, there's so many things to trade, right? You can trade currencies, you can trade uh, equities. Within the equity universe, you can trade one single stock out of, I don't know, 5,000 or, or more stocks, right? Um, and so I think you can find a lower variance trading strategy than poker, right? right. That being said, um, you know, the variance that uh, I, I adjust for, you know, commodities trading, there's commodities you can go and you trade power, you're day trader in power. You're not going to get any greater variance than that here in the U.S., right? I mean, ERCOT power is now trading $9,000 for this hour, right? Normally trades 40, right? And it'll go back down or whatever. So like you get, Holy shit. You, you can get some serious uh, variance going on there. And, and the weather is the big driver, right? That's our random number generator. Okay. For, for, yeah, right. And so it, it, it really depends on what you're trading and what niche you're in, right? Mm-hmm. There's guys who pay, who make like a pretty good living, you know, just arbitraging this versus that, right? Pair trading this versus that and, and, and 
doing merger arbitrage and things that are like fairly low risk and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Okay, Bill. Things that I'm not an expert in, but I know that they're, you know, guys like, this is what I do. I've been doing it for, you know, 20 years and it's like, this is this is the money I get, et cetera, right? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, Bill, so are poker players better traders than traders are poker players? I, I tend to think so. Um, um, because th- it seems that when traders come into poker, they overestimate how uh, the level of learning they need to do of poker, right? Mm. They, they think that they tend to think, you know, well, I'm a trader. I understand the math, the risk rewards, but there's a deeper level of understanding of poker. Like when you really start to study poker and understand what's going on and concepts like indifference and GTO and, and exploitive that traders don't go and do their homework. But if a poker player comes in to, 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 to trading, they're like, I don't know shit. I know this, but I need to learn. And they actually do learn. So I, I think it's more of an attitude and a learning thing mm-hmm. uh, than a cap- than an outright raw human capability thing. Right. 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 So people think poker is much simpler than it actually is. Right, right. Yeah, I could see that. Um, And and so so I guess on that topic, uh, how much study time do you actually put into poker and like are you using software? Um, So up until maybe, uh, you know, nine months ago, very little. Right. Like not like just kind of learn by doing like playing chess. That's kind of. You know, it's it's recreational, right? And it's like, oh, how fun. I'll play. I'll play these guys, you know, you know, kind of old school poker. I don't think you got it, son. Oh, I don't know who you are. You know that type of thing? Yeah, Bill, I, um, used, to love, I used to love going on 2 plus 2, the high stakes uh, forum, to see your, your hands on uh, on PokerStars. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, just, it's just really gambling, right, yeah. back then. And then I decided, I'm like, you know what? The stakes I'm playing and the amount I'm playing – it, 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 I should be studying, right? I should be learning. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I got two coaches to, and, and, and started learning. Yeah. Nice. And, and, and putting some effort into it. It's like, you know, this it's recreational, but this is real money. So let's, let's take this seriously. <laughs> right, right, right. Show some respect. Right? Like I can have fun and not lose. Right. <laughs> right. That, that, that's the ideal, right? Like not have fun, not lose for me. Right. And, 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 and actually make money. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. All right. Last question from me, then I'm going to kick it off to JJ. Um, Your thoughts on online poker versus live poker and what do you prefer? I prefer, well, with the clock, I prefer live poker. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, And and cash games, I prefer live cash games. It's just, for me, um, you know, I'm kind of like a mini robot trading and I do that all the time. Right. And, and, and I'm, I love, I think people who are in poker or in trading love solving puzzles, right? Yeah. They actually like, make, they love money, but they love making money by solving puzzles, right? Like we're kind of addicted to puzzles, right? Mm-hmm. And so, but, you know, being in the puzzle box, you know, land is, is draining after a certain while. And so when you're online, you're sort of missing that human interaction and the other entertaining aspects of it, mm-hmm. right? And the live tells and and that type of thing. And so that makes it bearable. But, you know, I'm in front of a screen a lot of hours in my life, whether it's a a computer screen or my phone screen using, you know, an app to trade on um, and to 
you know, then go, oh, wait, now I'm going to entertain myself or <laughs> I'm going to play poker and then I'm going to do the same thing again. You know, it's just it's just overwhelming. Right? Yeah. yeah, I could get that. Yeah, for sure. All right. All right. Cool. So, JJ, you want to kick it off? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, you know, first of all, honor speaking to you. I've, you know, you're uh, you've traded in, in in some of the some of the most um, the sort of you know the history of the financial markets uh, with John Arnold, and um, so you started out on the the floor of the was it the New yeah York New York Mercantile Market? Exchange. Now was that located in the Trade Center building? Yeah, it was for World Trade Center. Okay. I was I, I, yeah. I was there the first time the bomb went off. <laughs> when they Were yeah, you really? yeah, I mean I took I was going to San Diego to visit my friend Quinn who was playing football for San Diego at the time and every, every my phone blew up once I landed and it was just like, "Oh, I was like, wow, I, I missed this uh the first bomb, you know, when they bombed the garage, right?" Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. And just um how did you you know, what was it like back then? Cause I've spoken to a lot of guys from the Chicago floor, but you're the first person I've, I've interviewed or spoken to who was on, you know, the New York Merck floor. Uh, can you tell us a little bit of what it was like, the culture? It, and was, that sort of thing? it was chaos and crazy. It was kind of like everything traded on the Merck. I, you know, the mercantile is energy. Uh, so there was coffee, sugar, cocoa, the energy exchanges, right. And gold, right. That were there and cotton, um, cotton, coffee, sugar, cocoa, gold and energy. And I was in the energy side uh, in the Merck building. And it, it was just a lot of people from Staten Island, heavy Italian influence, boys club, crazy market makers trading. You know, the pits would stop doing NCAA basketball team and compliance would have to come stop us from trading basketball futures, right? <laughs> and the clerks ran the pools who had no money, but we, that's what our job was, is to like, you know, make all these markets on, on basketball futures. Right. And then somebody would be on the line with somebody from Chicago and they would have like a hundred pool and we'd have a pool out of 64 and they do conversions and arbitrage and whatever. And, you know, it, it was, it was just nuts. It was like, you, you need tickets. Oh, there's that guy go to Larry tickets. He's got tickets. You need this guy or whatever. He, you need a car. You need, it was like, Money exchange yeah. for every single commodity you can possibly imagine, you know, from sex to sofas, you know, <laughs> it, it was kind of this wild west, you know, financial arena uh, that was both scary and wonderful at the same time. Yeah, that must have been a, a great experience. I mean, I, I I was I was never down on, on the floors. I started right when they closed the floors in Vancouver. Uh, the trade desks, but I can imagine, you know, a floor of that size with that many diverse people, um, you know, and the stories that you must have that, uh, that would be a book in itself. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. There's been a couple books. It's, it's just, it, it's really hard to relay to people the sense and the feeling. And, and, and I, I remember like, uh, you know, I was making $16,000 a year or whatever when I first got on there. Um, uh, and, and having that Merc badge, and I was so proud <laughs> to have a clerk badge, you know. You know, I was one of those guys you saw down and, uh, you know, riding with the badge prominently displayed, hung around his neck, you know. He's just like, I'm a yuppie, you know. <laughs> I was so freaking happy as a, an assistant peon, just work, you know, just because of the opportunity set there uh, and, and the things I was learning rapidly. Yeah, that's that's quite something. Dude, now, uh, I, I just, um, I, I use the word OPM a lot, uh, other people's money, um, 
and because I, I work with a lot of retail traders now. Um, and um, for yourself, um, how does your psychology, you know, have to change when you're dealing with, you know, managing other people's money as opposed to trading your own account? Yeah, uh, it's sometimes it, it's a it's a greater level of discipline. Um, and, you know, so, you know, when I opened up my fund, I was, you know, the, the first version of it was like, don't cry if you lose all your money. Like this is all your money is always at risk every day. Right. And we're a riskier, high, 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 high volatile fund. Um, and, you know, our, the investor base wanted X, Y, and Z. And so we adjusted that. And I, I find myself that when I have other people's money, I'm at a higher, my game is a higher level. Right. Because, you know, it's like if, if, if I'm trading in my personal account and, you know, some other priority comes up or whatever, I, I can make a decision to go, oh, well, I'll just deal with this or I'll, I'll, I'll you know, now I won't pay attention to this or whatever. It's only a thousand dollars or ten, whatever the, the number is. That. Yeah. I yeah. can't do that with your money. Yeah. I, I made an agreement with you. I said I would do my best. You know what I mean? I got to be on this. I, I got to do this kind of risk reward trades. I got to do X, Y and Z. And I got to explain to you after the fact when shit goes wrong that. I take the uh, the appropriate risk reward decision, and I would you know do it again. Not that hey, I got tired or I was goofing off or whatever. Exactly. You know what I mean? It's like I can't get tired. I don't have that luxury anymore, and it's it's constraining in a way, but it's it's constraining in a good way, I guess. Now, I also read that you you do the risk management as well. I mean, you're the risk manager um, or have been at various firms. Um, how did how did you find that experience and that? Did it help your trading? I, I, you I know? think that label means different, and it means that you have a risk book and you can risk capital, right? Like, oh, okay. it's not—it's not like I'm the guy going, "Hey, cut back your limits." You know what I mean? I, I do that with oh. the traders under me here in, in this organization, but generally, you know, there's a risk committee, and I have—you know—I'm one of the guys on it. But I have a, a CFO, CIO. They come tap me on the shoulder, hey. There's limit. <laughs> There's a funny story that when I was trading at Centaurus, I used to bust limits. John find me all the time. Yeah. Really? It's like if you look at my total PL, I would go, well, that doesn't include the fines I paid to John. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was aggressive as hell back then. <laughs> wow, that's that's amazing. You'd be like, you know, like at the end of the day, like I was like, oh, I don't want to cross the bit ask or whatever. Better to just pay the fine, fucking a page the fine. <laughs> And it's in the millions. I've made John millions of times. Oh, I can imagine. I can imagine. <laughs> it was, it was, John was like, I was the one guy in the shop you had to worry about. Like, John, you know, John had to worry. Yeah. About. Okay. You were the guy. Okay. I was that, that guy, guy, right? Okay. Like, I was like, John, okay. you know, I, I would do my work, whatever, get convicted. I'd be like, we got to do this, we, whatever. I'd buy risk. You know what I mean? I'd do whatever I could to try and get it on uh, when I saw a scenario that, that looked good. Now, now, trading in, in that sort of a sense, you know, the way you guys trade, like, you know, natural gases, you know, you'll come in at it from a fundamental because, you know, mostly I work with day and swing traders. So, you know, you guys will like build into a position because you have a thesis and then you have to have, you know, you got to have the stones to hold that position, even when it runs against you, even, you know, if you know your thesis is right, what can can you kind of describe what that experience is? Because most of our listeners have no. Yeah, clue. it's it's um you know we we come from a belief like there are different styles of trade day trading. There was some day trading that went on based on what we thought the psychology of the market or what information we felt was going to come out and how the market was going to react to it. 
whether it be the weather or the EIA or et cetera. But generally, we were seasonal positional traders, right? We had a thesis that, hey, there's too much gas and there won't be room to store it, so prices need to go lower, right? So they shut in the gas. Or, hey, there's not enough gas. We're burning too much gas. It's going to – it's you know, a normal winter, we're going to have to ration off demand and, and price is the mechanism which happens that, right? And in that belief is this kind of like the market is quasi-efficient and that economics work, right? That price matters. So that that's one thing, right? We come at it from that belief. Um, and that And we gather fundamentals and we have a view. And when the market is significantly different from a view, we start loading up and we generally don't change until the fundamental changes, or they absolutely kick us in the teeth, right? And stop us out, right? And sometimes those kicking in the teeth really, really hurt, right? <laughs> and so, yeah, as Brian Hunter can attest, yeah, to. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he, you know, he had a thesis, right? And and the size he put on the thesis was large. You know, his exit and entry fee was too big, right? He could he can only have one way. He had to be right, or else he was going to blow up. And he and he blew up. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, I, 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 you know, I'm from the province, you know, right next to Alberta. And uh, I remember when Amaranth was blowing up and, you know, I guess, you know, John Arnold was on the other side of those trades um, from what everybody says and what the, you know, I guess the history books, what was it like working for him or with him? I should well, say the, the majority of the Amaranth, like Brian Hunter's position was in my book against him. We really? all traded it. We all had, he traded a spread called March, April, right? Like that was the biggest thing he, uh, that it became. He had a, like a butterfly, like long October, short, uh, long, short October, long March, short April, right? Knock rolls off and he has this massive, massive, massive uh, March, April spread on, right? So much so that storage fields were being built. Like it changed the nature of the, the, the market, like people were building storage fields based on those spreads. Right. And he had them, he had them out for several years. Right. Like it, it was at a price where people are like, wow, I can build something and arb this, this, this market. So we thought it was ridiculous. Um, and you know, he would, he, you know, we kind of got out of the way because people would just get run over. Right. Like buy them at 90. Okay. Where are you now? At ninety five, buy them. Where are you now? Not in the, so you in, now. Where's it now? Buy buy with dollar twenties. Like you just ran people up, just blowing them out, right? Past wow. their risk limits. And um, I remember the the day it was unraveling. I got a call like I don't know, like five five a.m. John calls. He's like, "Where would you make a market for sixty thousand March Aprils, which is like an ungodly amount of size, right?" And I'm like, oh, yeah. I. I think I'm, I'm here at I, – I gave up a two-way, hung up, didn't hear anything, right? So we didn't get the deal, right, like when they were unwinding. But I had the opposite side of the – I had a lot of the opposite side of the position. So yeah. the next thing you know, two hours later, I get a call from a broker on the front end because he had strips of March, Aprils. Broker's like, where are you on 30,000 March, Aprils? I'm like, oh, God, here we go. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and, you know, I made a market and et cetera. But bef- while that was happening, like before they blew up, I was making ridiculous markets for Brian Harder in and out every day. Like it was just amazing what, you know, wow. he had such a big foot. You know, there's a concept called the reflexive principle. It's basically your footprint on the market, right? Like 
if you buy enough or sell enough, right, it's going to, you know, impact the price. And it was just a massive footprint. You know, it was just really hard to make money do, you know, in the size he was slinging around back then. And if he was right, he would have crushed us all. Like, he would absolutely destroy the market. (laughs) 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 This interview might not be happening. (laughs) The thing is, this is, you know, people don't realize that the the history, um, I'm I'm a a junkie about the history of the financial markets. And um, uh, I I was very, very uh, blessed to one day talk to Nelson Bunker Hunt, uh, who was a friend of a client of mine, and they cornered the silver market back in the 70s. So like events like this and what you traded through and and actually were on the opposite side of the book, um, you know, that's pretty amazing. Um, We... you usually don't get access to guys like yeah, you. Yeah, it's, it's it's an amazing time. Like it was a it was a defining moment. Um, and luckily that you know the way it worked at Centaurus is, is that we didn't have an end of year, right? The the hedge the people who invested at the end of the year, but as a trader and you you had a rolling year. So and so as you made money, you were able to deploy risk, more risk. So you can risk almost which your positive it's called your positive trader balance. You could risk your entire role, right? Just can't go negative. And so, you know, I was lucky enough to, or, you know, smart enough or whatever you want to call it, right, to have a pretty sizable trader balance uh, going into that. And I was willing, you know, I was Bill Perkins back then. I'm I'm ready to swing for the fences. Like, let's bring it on. Let's risk it all, you know? And so, you know, luckily I had a sizable balance that I could trade and, 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 and take advantage of these anomalies in the market. Right, and, and and get in these good risk reward trades. That's yeah, that that that's amazing, especially like trading that kind of size. You know, for for retail traders, it, it's not like when we're in and we, you know we're marketing in and out of you know the S and P E mini, which is insanely liquid, right. and you know our size is not. You know, the size that these guys trade, um, it's hard to get out of these positions. No. You know, they, yeah, you, you can't. You know, you just can't get out no, of them. You no, know? it was it was like you you better be right, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, fortunately, you know his. You know, it's funny is the the next winter we were like, you know, if we had a winter like this earlier, Hunter might have destroyed the whole market because everybody had some of the opposite position. He basically was Hunter versus the market. You know, we were one of the largest pieces of it. Um, that that's yeah that. That, that's just mind blowing, and and I don't know if if you saw there was an interview at the time, and you probably saw it when when Julian Robertson from Tiger, uh, you know the guy who started Tiger Management, he was being interviewed on Bloomberg about this, and he's an older gentleman, and uh, and the only thing he could really talk about that really amazed him was that Brian Hunter was driving a Bentley around Calgary, Alberta. <laughs> he said he was, you know, like Brian Hunter was like a guy, like he, he got another chance. Like somebody gave him some money. And I was like, I actually would give that kid money. And, and here's my, here's my logic behind, behind that. I went to the Kentucky Derby with him. We all went down to the Kentucky Derby with him and he killed it. The Kentucky Derby. Okay. I said, he's either going to lose a hundred percent of your money or like, you know, 10 exit. <laughs> like, and I was like, and it's not unreasonable for him to 10 exit. Like he has, you know, he, he can do it. And I, I thought that he's an asymmetric, he's the right type level of aggression. Problem is, is he didn't really take an advantage, uh, take into account liquidity of his positions. Yeah. Um, mm. You know, but I, I think some of his insights into like 
you know, which we saw in subsequent years that, you know, you can have a problem and run out of gas in March. The infrastructure isn't there. Were, you know, I think they were overblown. He was overpaying for the risk reward. He had the wrong risk reward on. Right. He just didn't pay attention to that. But he had some good ideas, you know, buried in all the chaos. There were some good ideas in there. Yeah, I, I, I just, I, I still to this day remember Julian Robertson going, why would you have a Bentley in Calgary? You know, <laughs> we ride around on horses up here and there's no, you know, we have dirt roads or something like that, he you know? And I, I was laughing for about half an he hour. Is, he was an aggressive, shiny guy, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, I, the other thing too is um, just from a psychology standpoint, when, when you're, you know, building into these positions on a fundamental view. And, and for the people who are listening out there, you guys are listening to somebody who was in on history that was made. And um, there takes a certain type of individual to run money when, you know, they, the market's crushing them and they have a fundamental view. And these are how big, big trades are done. Uh, what, what is your psychology like when, when you're going through that, like when you're, especially when you're getting drawn. I, down. I think like one of my strengths was, is that I was the least affected by bad events. Right. And the least muted, least celebratory on good events. Right. Like it, it was just kind of like, this is part of the game, but there were two particular times. I remember where Centaurus risked the firm where we were like, wow. Oh my God, we're gonna die! <laughs> you know, turns out we made like you know twenty percent that month or whatever in the end, but like we were going to die. Like the market was going against us; it was high stress levels, etc. And you know, subsequently after coming out, we went to a polar vortex where it was like super cold. I was on the wrong side of the market, and I was like, "All right, I'm dead." And and you know, I tend to think of other people in those scenarios, right? Because you know, I'm a trader, but I support a back office. You know, I got clerks, I got analysts, et cetera. I start to worry a little about them. But, you know, I accept that I'm in a ring. I'm a box in a ring. I'm going to get punched. And most boxers get knocked yeah. down. And honestly, if I trade this long enough, I'm going to get knocked out. Right. <laughs> and so it's the nature of the beast. And you have to accept that uh, and realize that, you know, opportunity. Just like bad times come along, there will be a bad time. There will be more opportunities and chances. And if you believe in your edge and you still have edge and you can still do it, you stick with it and keep going until they knock you to, knock you the hell out, right? And yeah. so, no, no, I th- that's really cool because getting a perspective. Uh, you know, I I come from a different side of the world, but I, you know, I was doing deals and taking public and I had stress too, but um, how did you keep it from affecting your personal life? Were you able to go and do normal things or were you like always looking at the screen or could you actually go and live a normal life like away from the screen for a couple hours? Um, were you able to do stuff? I would say yes, but I, it does interfere. It wasn't the stress, right? Like my wife would never know if I had a good day or bad day. It was just the same, oh, really? you know, it was just kind of, and I, I think that was actually, um, Actually, not good, you know, because it, it, I robbed her of the uh, of the ability to like be a part of my life, right? Uh, you know, like celebrate the good times and, and 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 commiserate with the bad times and 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 the growing and learning that comes with that. But honestly, it just didn't really affect me that much. I'm like, you know, I, I was a screen clerk 
I lived, you know, I could, I can be a screen clerk again. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I just, I just felt like I don't want to go back, but I can go back, you know? And so, and I was like very appreciative of where I was and, and had perspective of like where I, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, I'm in fantasy land. First of all, I'm in the United States of America in a growing economy, post-civil rights. Like I got all the advantages one could be, right? Exactly. And so when you start thinking about like on a broader spectrum, you can come out of kind of like, like your myopic universe and go like, all right, all right. So we lost, yeah. you know, $20 million today. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Half my PL or I lost my fund just drew down 50 for 50% and I'm, you know, I'm getting redemption notices. And I'm probably going to blow up, you know, it, you got, you deal with that. Like it's, it's, it's part of being a boxer. Like, you know, you can't be a boxer if you don't like getting punched. You know, and so that's true. You know, you gotta like getting punched. Like it's part of the job. You're like, okay, that's yeah. part of it. Like next, you know, yeah. I'll get next time. And so that's you know those moments are what I generally try and you know because there's tons of bright guys, tons and tons and tons of bright guys. It's like, but are they still bright and still rational after they've been punched in the face? Oh, that's true. <laughs> You know, and so that's the that's the problem. Like you have tons of bright guys panicking and worrying. Oh, what am I going to do? I'm going. I might lose my job, and all that stuff starts getting into there, and the ego starts getting into it. And once once that happens, you're done for. And so, yeah. as almost like a religious belief, that we try to tend to be robotic about it, right? Like the, the least. And one of the things that John was great about is removing his emotions from trading. Really? He was the master okay. of that. Really? Oh, okay. Wow. Interesting. It's interesting. Yeah, I was always, always fascinated yeah. by. Um, you you, you, know, you want to know the market psychology? You want to read other people's emotions because that's a that's a fundamental, right? Demands for futures is fundamental, right? And technicals are generally good for spotting that, right? Because other people are believing, and it, it 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 gives you information on what other people are thinking or believing. Right. So you got you kind of want how to understand what the market is thinking, but you don't want your own ego, fears, et cetera, affecting your decision making. Right. You want to remove that as much as possible. Got it. And John was pretty much the king of that. I, I think I'm, you know, back then and even now, probably way up there. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. And then you also, you know, you, you use it in, in poker as well, too. So. Uh, yeah, I, I don't so. think I'm as good at it as in poker for whatever reason, right? It, it, it's interesting. It's like, you know, the the um, you do have to use that in poker. Like you have to understand the reality of the game and the variance of the game so that your expectations and reality don't mismatch and you go on tilt. I mean, a trader on tilt can ruin his life. A poker on tilt would probably lose a session, right? So that's. You, you, it's. I think it's much more dangerous being a tilty trader than than poker because I think you'll quit after you know whatever you have on the table. When you're trading, you, you know when you sign an agreement to trade as a retail, you sign something with a clearinghouse that says they can come and take everything you own to make up for your losses, right? And so you're basically your life is on the line, right? Your economic yeah, life is on that's the line. True. Whereas when poker, it's just whatever you got on the table at the time, right? But like you get you get on tilt and you start shorting something and you don't want to give up and it, it keeps going and blows up and the clearinghouse stops you out and you know 
They, oh. they, they, it's not just what you had in the clearing account. It's like, well, what you got? What else you got in your pocket? You know what, I mean? <laughs> what else you got? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's like being held upside down. It's shaking, shaking you, man. It's like, it's like the scene from Goodwill Hunting. What do you got? What you got in your pocket? <laughs> Uh, speaking of movies, how do you, um, how did you end up getting into producing movies? I mean, I mean, you're quite a sociable guy and I've, I've seen your Instagram. So, uh, you know, you're, you're out. It was just one of those things where like when I got rich, I, I mean, I always kind of was interested in movies and making movies. And I was just like, well, I think this is what rich guys do. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so I was in, I was in LA and a, and a friend had made a movie called better luck tomorrow. He produced it. He made it for like a million bucks. And MTV Films picked it up and he put it out. And I was like, shit, I can lose a million dollars. I want to make movies. And so I got uh, ICM was my agent. I got into film packaging. And I was just kind of like originally the jackass with the money. Like I didn't know what I was doing, but I had the money. And people just kind of pretend, you, you know, they're nice to you because you have the money. Yeah. And then I, I liked it. You know, I, I really enjoyed it. And so then I started to really get into it. And like, all right, I don't want to invest in movies. I want to make movies. I want to be part of the the process. And so my, my saying became, you know, I don't invest in bakeries. I bake cakes. You know what I mean? So if I'm not baking a cake, I don't care that your bakery is going to make a zillion dollars, whatever. That's not what I'm interested in. I'm interested in the creative process and putting something out there and having some fun, you know? And so I kind of got sucked into the world of making movies for a bit. Oh, it's interesting. I, I saw unthinkable and I, and I liked it. It was very dark. Yeah. That was my first uh, you know, jackass with the money movie. <laughs> unthinkable. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Hey, was, Joe, was, hey, hey, can I can I uh, interject for a second? Hey, hey, Bill. So I, you know, I I, uh, I was looking and I saw you're uh, you're attached to a a uh, movie in pre production. That's correct. Yeah, it could yeah, be. Which one? Zombies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> the name already bought me, man. Like I'm going to see it. Like what? What can you can you get on the so, you know, this is kind of this is kind of one of those funny nepotism stories. Whatever. My brother writes, right? He comes to me. He's like, I got this story. I got this idea. He's like, uh, we, you know, it's about zombies in the ghetto. And, you know, the zombies are going around. And, like, the reaction of the ghetto is kind of like nobody's really paying attention, right? Like, they're zombies are walking on a guy's azalea. The guy's like, wait, we want an azalea. Somebody's getting eaten off a bike. You know, it's kind of – and so the, the zombies – and the, the reaction in Hood was kind of like basically about apathy uh-huh. in the ghetto, but in a zombie movie, you know, and then the community rises up to kill the zombies. So the community rises up to kill off apathy. Right. And I was like, this is brilliant. We have to do this movies. It's funny. And, you know, it's got a message and it's humor and it's zombie. And, you know, he wrote a script and I'm trying to get it right. But, I, you know, making movies takes a lot of time. Like it's like having a baby. You know, uh, you know, you got to you got to have your script, get your script right. You got to attach your actors and actresses, hire a director, reviewer, directing, producer, the whole crew, get out, shoot it, put it in the can, edit it. You know, it uh, talk with distributors. It's just a massive amount of time. And I just haven't had the time cut out to do it, you know. Yeah. Or I haven't moved it up the priority list, you know, like eventually I'm trying to figure out what I want to do with my life. <laughs> You know, one of these days I'm going to figure out what I want to do. Yeah, well, hopefully, you can get it out there. That definitely seems like a uh, interesting concept. Yeah, the movies are fun to make. Like even even just goofball movies, they're they're a lot of fun. All right, JJ, you you still got a few more questions, or should I jump back in? 
Okay. Oh, um, jump back in, please do. All right. So, uh, so I don't know if you've heard of Turney Duff. He was he was an author of um, best selling book called By Side. Um, and you know he he talks a lot about like you know him and his buddies getting like chauffeured around uh, New York City in like limos, you know whorehouses, coke dens, etc. You were once a driver, one of the chauffeurs, correct? Correct. I was like, well, I don't know about being driving the front of the limo. <laughs> so when I was a screen clerk, I didn't have enough money to like get by. Like it was just not going to cut it. You know, and uh, so uh, they were like, our limo driver quit. And I was like, I'll drive the limo. And so I didn't know anything about driving a fucking limo, but I drove it. And I was like a driver at night to drive around. And I I was, I, my, I didn't even know there were whorehouses until I was a driver in there. Like I had some really funny experiences driving the limo and driving people around oh at night to make money. But I was making more money as a driver at night than I was as a clerk. Because... <laughs> You know, these guys be coke, drunk, you know, taking you places, tipping you, yeah. here, you know, Perkins. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 here's 100 bucks. Here's 200 bucks. I'm like, this is fucking awesome. You know, I'm going to get a date tonight. And I like go out. And, you know, I, I saw kind of what the, what the, you know, six figure plus crowd did to release Steam. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. And, uh, any interesting, you know, like stories or moments that stick out? I mean, I, 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 I would tell something a little bit more. I, I can just tell you that, that I know the, the, the whorehouse that Howard Stern <laughs> used to go to in a couple of times. <laughs> like, you know, and it's just interesting stories. Like, they'd be driving, you know, driving here, they bring you in, you know, it's just, it's just really weird, chaotic movie like stuff. And you, it, it seemed like a cartoonish version of life, but it was real. It was happening. It was like, holy shit. Exactly. You know, and, and everybody stereotypes us as, as those kind of guys. But when you actually go and spend time <laughs> with those guys, you know, I see why they yeah, do it. You know? yeah. Especially like, on the yeah, floor. Like, yeah. it's a different animal, right? Like, we're totally different from the, the oh, New yeah. York Stock Exchange where everybody's wearing suits and ties and shit like that. Our, our, the floor was like Animal House, you know? Exactly. <laughs> it's literally yeah, like yeah, Animal I mean, House. That's like the appropriate movie to, to tell you what the floor is like. Oh, yeah. I mean, our Vancouver floor for the Vancouver Stock Exchange, you know, there was a guy that sold beer out of a cooler, you know, so it was not really, you know, it wasn't very white shoe no, Goldman Sachs. No. My job know? was to sneak sandwiches on the floor to traders. <laughs> like, that was my job. <laughs> you know, check trades and sneak sandwiches and do whatever, right? No, but it, it's, it's, um, they were in high pressure, you know, the market makers, high pressure jobs, you know adrenaline's going all the time and, and, and I can see why they would, you know, have this level of chaos at night or, you know, when they're not trading. You know? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So Bill, so you, um, transitioning to the, you know, the thirst lounge and, um, one, I got to ask why the name, because like I was confused at first. I thought I was going to like log on to Twitch and just see a bunch of broads doing, you know, God knows what, but, um, <laughs> so- yeah, that, that, I think I've said this before, but um, so I was dating this girl and I was on Instagram. And she kind of hated that I was on Instagram. She was kind of like anti-Instagram. She's like, it's just a thirst trap. Like guys flex, post cars and money and jets and whatever to get girls all thirsty. And girls are showing bikini shots and blah, blah, blah to get the, the, the guys thirsty. It's just a thirst trap. And I was like, whoa, 
I don't want to trap anybody. I want to lounge. I just want a thirst lounge, you know, come visit and not trap you. You know what I mean? So I was like, I had this idea of like the thirst lounge, okay. not a thirst trap. And so that's where I got yeah, the no, name that's from. Clever. No, know? no, that's clever. I like it. So, um, yeah, you want, you want to explain to the audience, like, uh, you know, what you're doing, uh, you know, what the yeah, so like the Thirst Lounge, like I used to basically get on. Jeff Gross was like, "Hey, you should stream. You like streaming. You're fairly entertaining guy. Why don't you get on stream on Twitch and play poker and just you know chat with an audience, etc." So I did it, enjoyed it. I would just set up on my on my boat um, and travel around, you know, travel on the BVI and play poker, and um, it, it was fun. I really enjoyed interacting with people and 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 got you know a little bit of an audience going and. Um, Realize that I don't have the time to 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 dedicate that the 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 audience needed right because you, you it, contrary to TV where you just you know you speak is recorded and they watch it when they want to watch you actually have interaction that's the the attraction that you can talk to your TV right that's Twitch right and so I was like well why don't I give uh, run an experiment and give some young poker players some resources and some aspirations and and they run the channel and see see what they can do right like you know you always have these people like well if i had this money and blah 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 and a bankroll i'd do x right or if i had this or that and i was like all right here you go here's fucking mm, right. x let's see what you do right. you know what i mean and so that's the thirst lounge as it is right now it's theirs to run um you can see whether they're learning and getting better in poker if they're taking advantage of the opportunity that they're given both on a media basis and a poker basis or whether they're just screwing off and, right, and right, fucking yeah, it no, up. Shout out to the thirst lounge. I saw, I saw one of the, uh, one of the guys, uh, banked the tournament last night. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're getting much better. They've gotten a lot, you know, the original was like, Hey, you get a house in the Virgin islands. You get use of the yacht. We got an editor, you get some production value and you get, um, 20,000 yeah. bankroll, right. To go ahead and play poker. But, on top of that, you know, they're getting tickets and courses and stuff like that to help make them uh, better poker players and, you know, brought in a, another producer to give them, you know, better chance at entertaining people and seeing how they develop. And, you know, sometimes, you you know, I think certain people have come down, like it and can excel in that format, kind of that kind of undirected format. And some people may find out, you know, this is not for me. I thought I could kick ass and do this, but maybe it's not for me, but we'll find out. And, and, and hopefully it's entertaining. Yeah, no, no, I think it is. Time. I mean, you know, as you know, poker needs more entertainment, more, you know what I mean, um, energy. Um, and I think that's definitely definitely bringing it with that. I mean, we could even do uh, – bring something like that I think would even be interesting like with, with trading as well. It could like uh, replicate that model. Um, and so moving on to, you know, your book, you're authoring a book about, on a philosophy of yours. Um, so you can tell the listeners what that's about. And, you know, I'm interested how you even like came to this concept of Die With Zero. Um, yeah, so the book the book is called Die With Zero, and it's essentially you know goes on the, this this simple premise: is that if you work for money, right, you generally work for money to to survive, and then also to do stuff, right? And so, to the extent that you work for money to do stuff and then die with money, you've essentially wasted your life, right? Because mm-hmm. you didn't you work. It's like you went in a rat in a wheel, and you didn't you didn't get the cheese, right? <laughs> and so, a lot of people or get good and develop habits to acquire capital and they forget the reason why they acquired that capital or that money, right? They just keep doing it. And what they don't realize is that their body is deteriorating. And so the, the subset of activities that they can spend and ex- have experiences on 
whether it's even just walking around, deteriorates with time. So mm-hmm. given those, you know, I'm going to go into the whole book, but given the, you know, those, those ideas, um, one, it's optimal to die with zero, right? No money left over, right? That's the, the, if you were God, you would do it that way, right? And there's a time to when to spend your money, when it should be at its maximum level and when your net worth should peak, right? Because when you're saving, you're delaying gratification, right? You're saving to survive, and then you're also saving to delay gratification for future gratification that may be greater, right? You're investing. You're like, well, I'll make this, and I'll be able to take two or three ski trips as opposed to one right now, right? But at a certain point, it's like you're not trying to ski at 90, right? Very true. <laughs> you Very you true. know, so if you, if you um, were looking down from heaven, right, and say, okay, Bill Perkins, you're going to live to 86 and what are the things you want to do? You, and here's, here's, here's all the things you can do. And I go, I want to do this 2000 times. I want to have sex 18,000 times. And I want to blah, 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 whatever. It's like, okay, great. Here's your bucket of things. You can do all these things, but you have to put them in the right time slots because if you don't, you can't fit them all in hmm. your life. Right. You're not going to put the 18,000 sex things at 90, right? <laughs> or the skiing, right? And you're not going to put the you're not going to put the having the kids at 90, right? You're going to put it somewhere in between 20 and 35, 40, right? And like you're going to have to like pack these things right. And so when you start unpacking these things you want to do in the proper buckets, you realize that there's kind of a curve, right? And that curve is activities and act- activities is represented by money. And so it represents your spend curve. And so you can interchange those two. And so it's about optimizing your life and getting the maximum out of your life by correctly ordering your activities and spending yeah. your money at the proper times. Now, I, I got to interject here because this is a book that I could have used when I was 25 years old. Because everything that you talk about just now, I made the those exact mistakes. I mean, I haven't had a vacation since 1995. The first time I had a vacation was 2012 when I had a quintuple bypass and I died. So, you know, this, yeah, this, this hits me like to the core because after I died and came back to life and, you know, had heart surgery, um, you know, then I started thinking about these things and I was like, wow, you know, I haven't had a vacation since 95 because if you're not there to answer the phone, your clients go to somebody else. Um, So yeah, that's amazing. I wish I had that book when well, I was it's, 25. It's, you know, I can't get you back your past, but we can, you know, you can start from now, start thinking about like, okay, from now to the day I die, what are the things I want to do and what age bucket and what year do they go in, right? Like what do I want out of this ride, right? And so, you know, you can, it's, it's not too late. The earlier, the better to think about these, but these are the things, you know, I, I wrestle with too that I need to think about like, okay, I'm 50 now. What do I want to do? What do I want out of life? And like, you know, I was I was actually going to go wakeboarding the other day. I was like, yeah, maybe not going to go wakeboarding. It was on my birthday. I was like, wait a minute, I'm not going to be able to fucking wakeboard pretty soon, right? I got a bad back. I got a generative thing in my back, whatever. I'm like, I'm going to fucking wakeboard now because I'm going to get the memory dividend from that and the experience now because this is not something that I can put off 20 years or 15 years, right? Exactly. And so those those are the questions and things, uh, you know. I think everybody needs to think about at, at any income level, right? That's true. That's true. Yeah, we're the same age. So, yeah, I had my heart attack at 44. Ooh. So, yeah. 
uh, it's a, yeah, it's a wake up so, call, right? So, 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 Bill, from from my understanding, like like you you are or you were at least uh, I don't know where you're at in the progress of the book, but you, you were working with like a, a behavioral economist, correct? Yeah, Kay Yunchut, uh, and I are working with the author. So I just actually, before I got on this call, had a call with the uh, the writer I'm working with and the copy editor. So like it's nice. in copy edit. So it's it's the book is pretty much done. Like I'm not even allowed to change certain things right now from the publisher. Uh, it's just like a the you know comma goes here, grammar punctuation, you know that type of thing, and the layout. So I've just gotten a look at the layout, and it comes out May fifth. 2020 but it'll be done way before then like in the publishing world there's a long ramp of marketing so you know i'll make oh, sure you guys man, get my man thank copy. you so, so bill so this is something that like and i'm pretty sure i heard you talk about it. it's like it's like uh you like can model this correct like yeah so the original idea like i've been thinking about this you asked me like wait i've been thinking about this for a while like i was like you know having one of those existential moments like what what is the purpose of money? Like why why am I earning this money and when am I gonna spend it? Right? Like I'm clearly, you know, looking at my parents and and my dad who was older, like who didn't, you know, there's a there's a day you die and there's a day you stop <laughs> doing shit, right? There's exactly. two different dates. People don't get that. They're like, oh yeah, I'm just gonna like everybody thinks they're gonna be running marathons until they're 90 and then they're just gonna keel over. And that's like the point oh oh one percent of it. Most of us will like yeah be like we're just gonna sit in the house and watch jeopardy you know what i mean like and we're not we're not gonna do anything anymore except live off of our memories right and so i started thinking about that like it's like okay so when if i don't need money to do shit later when should i be spending this money and all those starts started coming to my head and developing this idea and this philosophy and being like what's the curve you know what's the spend curve what's the maximum if each experience is worth a point you know but they diminish in value like Walking around Paris is great now, but walking around Paris when you're 80, maybe not so great. You know, I went to St. Petersburg and one of the great things about St. Petersburg is that they let you walk up these churches and walk around the balconies. There were busloads of tourists coming along, right? Busloads of people who were retired or like 65. I didn't see a single fucking one walk up the stairs at the top of the church. So their experience at St. Petersburg was less than mine. They didn't get the same St. Petersburg, Right. Not that they didn't have a good time. It just wasn't as great as it could have been. There were views and things they didn't experience that they couldn't experience, right? And so, you know, that hits me. You know what I mean? It hits me hard. I'm like, okay, uh, these, you know, I need to start doing shit and consuming and having these experiences now. And so I was going to make a model, like an app, where you could put in your, you know, your net worth and interest rates and your health and your your what you think your health decline is going to be, your estimated day of death, you know, how conservative you want to be. And it says, okay, here's mm-hmm. your spend curve. You know what I mean? To get you to die with zero. So you have a more optimal life. And so like it would kick out and say, hey, Bill Perkins, you're supposed to be spending X per month and you're not. You know, here's some suggestions. Go fucking do this and click the random number generator and do that. Or go visit your aunt exactly. or go walk a park. You know what I mean? And and oh, I yeah. went to go see my doctor. And he, he, you know, he's one of these doctors where they, they, they try and keep you alive forever, right? They give you shots and hormones and MRIs and all this other kind of crap. And one part of the, part of the uh, evaluation is a psych evaluation, right? So they ask you a thousand dumb questions. They're not dumb, but whatever, right? And one of the questions are, you know, they ask you with stress and he says, are you worried about running out of money? 
And I go, I hope I run out of money. And he goes, what, what do you mean? And so I go into the spiel and he's like, nobody's ever answered the question that way. Right. <laughs> and he goes, you have to write a book. He's like, I understand that, but you have to write, you have to write this. And so I finally, that was the motivation I got to finally get off my ass and find somebody to help me write this book, go through the project, spend hours and hours on the phone talking and blathering and writing and blah, 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 and get this book going. Wow. And that's, that's how, that's how it happened. Dr. Chris Renner. He was the one who's like, nobody. Shout out, shout out ever, to Dr. Renner. That. That's, that's great. No, that that's, I, I love yeah. hearing stories like that. You know what I mean? It, it's just like, it, it was meant to happen, Bill. You know what I mean? Like, it, that's, that's incredible. That's awesome. You yeah. see, you seem. Yeah, you seem to me yeah. um, like a well-read person. Do you have any, you know, like top three like book recommendations? Maybe tailored towards our audience, maybe. Yeah, I mean, wow. Well, I'm gonna go one that's like not necessarily tailored to the audience, but I think helps people in life. My my favorite book to recommend people mm, is The Four Agreements, yeah. like right off the bat, right? Uh, that's just like get you right, and then we'll move on. The second book is I, I I really love this book. It's called A Brief History of Financial Euphoria. At least I think that by Kenneth Galbraith, right? And so I've read that book. My mother gave that to me a long time ago. And um, I've read that book like maybe four or five times. It's very short. And it's about every bubble and mania in history. Tulip bubble, South Sea bubble, et cetera. And my first read was like, wow, you got a short bubbles, right? Uh, you know, like all these bubbles that have happened in history and why they happen, et cetera, leverage and, and greed and avarice. And then the second time I was like, wait, you can't short bubbles. Sometimes you got to ride them up. You know what I mean? Like, don't get in the way of the bubble. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so oh, I read that like once every two years, I read that book. It's an awesome, awesome book for a trader to read. Kind of, like, you know, my first thing was like, oh, just short these. These people are being irrational. The second thing was like, no, the market oh, can yeah. freaking be irrational longer than you could be solvent. And the, here are all the historical examples of that, right? Exactly. And so, exactly. you know, I learned things like, you know, certain things you don't fight, you know. <laughs> so you get out of the way and sometimes you got to get stopped out. And so I, I think that's a really good book to read. I think entertaining, which I think is probably like everybody forces people to read. Like I had to read when I got on exchange was reminiscence yeah, of stock operator. That's my favorite. Yeah. I, yeah I've, I've read, I've read that. Um, so that's kind of like an obvious one. Um, I'm trying to think on another, another book. So the four agreements and brief history of financial euphoria I put up there for the trading audience. I'm trying to think if there's anything like on trading or any kind of, um, valuation books that are out there. I don't have them off the top of my head. Yeah, Maybe yeah, I'll have for sure. Any any too. like particular genre that like you know you're really like drawn to when uh, reading? It, it, I'm trying to get out of like nonfiction. Yeah, because I, I think as a I male, we're drawn else to but, nonfiction. Yeah. And so I, I've I've been trying to get into fiction. Just anything like I've read Little B and I love that book, right? I read, I recently read uh, East of Eden. I love that book. I just talking about it. I read it again. I went, so 
you know, I was kind of a screw off in high school and I didn't read the books that I was supposed to read in English Lit. And then I went through and I read every single book that I was supposed to read in high school. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? I, I went and read uh, Sun Also Rises and, you know, The Grapes oh, okay. of Wrath and, you know, all these all these books that I was supposed to read. And I was like, these are great books, you know? Yeah. You know, but, you know, uh, Guns, Germs and Steel is a book I love, you know, but these these are all these like kind of nonfiction books that we kind of get into. And as a friend of mine said, another trader is like, you know, we do nonfiction all freaking day. <laughs> all day. We do nonfiction all fucking day. It's like we need some creativity and some other stuff. Uh, you know, I want to check out, read a good story. And, yeah. And, yeah. And and there's on. a uh, there's a book that recently came out. Um, it's called Range. Why generalists triumph in a specialized world? Um, and you know, like I feel like you know, it's perfect that I came across this book and then come into you know to talk to you because you know I feel like the popular sentiment like in the world is like you know to specialize you know to be niche. Um, but you come across to me, I mean, well, not come across to me. I mean, you do do multiple things and you do multiple things well. So, like, what what are your thoughts on that topic? Um. I mean, I, I've, 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 I'm probably going to sound like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth. I, I felt like, you know, when everybody tells me, like, how, how do you get rich? I was like, it's concentration and leverage. It's generally leverage, right? It might be leverage in point in charging a million people a penny or getting, um, you know, 50 to 1 to 10 to 1 on a commodity, right? Right. And so, like, trade commodities, like stocks, when you trade, you're leverage trading, right? When you're day trading, right, you don't have to put up that much money, right? They might give you 20 to 1 leverage or, or 10, you know, 10 to 1, depending on the clearing firm or whatever, right? And that leverage allows you to walk home and make, you know, 1,000, 2,000, 10,000, 50,000 a day, mm. right? Trading, right? And so that leverage is where the money comes from. Now, some people do it like Google, like we take up half of a penny from, you know, a billion people, right? Or, or you know, leveraging our infrastructure. Um, or, or financial leverage, but um, in terms of like, you know, my life in general, those concepts right, apply right. almost everywhere, right? <laughs> and so, like, I can apply some of those things. Like, you know, when I look at a business or I'm investing or whatever, I'm like, all right, what's the leverage point here? Like, what what gets all the yield, right? Exactly. And so whether it's a movie and it's a distribution outlet or it's, you know, you know, the movie, you know, at, at this time, it's if you're seen here or, or, you know, it's this Instagram post that gets you all the girls looking at you, whatever you're trying to do. Right. Like it, it's it's trying to find the leverage and your interest. But I, I think like, you know, there's probably a, a few key concepts that I can apply to almost every situation, right? It's kind of like, and those concepts of those, what you know, those tools, it's like a Swiss army knife, right? Like I can pretty much do everything with the Swiss army knife, right? Of these concepts and go everywhere. And I like to, you know, I, I want to be, you know, I don't want to be known as a calculator or I don't want my life just to be calculating to earn money. I want to have experiences and do shit. So I just take those yeah. concepts wherever. Yeah, I yeah, absolutely. It's out, like, um, you know, I was always love this one, like Zen saying, it's like, uh, if you understand one thing, you understand all things. Um, so interesting concept. So um, yeah, I, got, I got one more question for you, Bill, and then, then I'll kick it off to JJ if he has anything left. Um, so for the listeners that don't know that you're friends with Dan Bazarian. Um, you know, and so, you know, everyone, you know, has this idea of who he is. They see this, this you know, larger than life persona. So my question is, what is he really like? And uh, maybe what are some of the misconceptions about him? Um. 
Okay. Um, I mean, it's hard to, to give you like what he's really like in, in just a short answer, but I, w- I would say that J- Dan is, is very honest, very straightforward and spoken, outspoken. Um, he, he's, he's nice. He's generally calm and he's also an asshole. <laughs> Which I thought I was like, you're such an asshole. You know what I mean? Like, but like he's a, he's a very good friend. He's very honest. He has integrity. Um, you know, and, and that's one thing I love about him. He has integrity. He's honest and he's straightforward. Um, he's outspoken and brash and opinionated, and you see some of that come out as well. But um, and he has a circus built around him, right? He's built up this circus. <laughs> you know, he started that whole Instagram thing to get back at his girlfriend to, to prove that he could be famous. Right, it was like it was ego, right? It was all ego, right? And he's like, "Shit, now, now, what do I do with this fucking thing?" <laughs> you know, and, and and he's very intelligent. Like it's it's you know, fame is you know, is fame, power, money, right? Um, and yeah. fame is in terms of getting girls is like one fifty to a hundred x money, okay? Um, and that's because humans are herd animals, uh, and pre-selection works, right? It's like you go to college and everybody's like having sex because we're all college students. We're all pre-selected. We're all whatever. And so once you pre-selected yourself and you're famous, it's like the broke guitarist lead whatever gets more tail than the millionaire. You know what I mean? And so that was Dan's thing. And he studies psychology. He understands about, you know, creating pre-selection and stacking the odds and framing the argument, whatever. And that's what it was, you know. But that's not a life. Like when I'm hanging out, Dan, most of the time we're playing chess. We generally play chess and we talk about love and fear because we think there's those two things. There's love and there's fear. Those are, those are the poles, right? And so we talk about like, you know, overcoming fears and, and these barriers and, you know, how the circus interferes with like, you know, you know, my wish for him is to, to fall in love and to take that risk, you know, and he's not taking that risk out of fear and, you know, we have like all these existential questions and, 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 and talks, you know, that's kind of like what it really is like. Now, that being said, you know, Dan is a hedonist and he's unapologetic about everything. Right. Like he loves women. He loves having sex with a bunch of women. He likes the fact that theme um, gives them all that access. Mm-hmm. Cool. Cool. Thanks. Right. And that's, that's, that's Dan <laughs> in a nutshell that I can tell you in two minutes. <laughs> And it's, and it's funny. I didn't really know anything about him because I, I knew more about his father because his you know his dad, dad is the original badass. Yes. No kidding. You know, taking the Singer Corporation and, and things like that. I mean, he was you know one of those one of the original guys, right? His dad is the nicest uh, guy. He his dad. Interesting. I had a deal that was going to fall apart, uh, and he gave me a pep talk, and I fucking stuck to it. He told me about a deal with I don't know back in the the, the days where. Uh, they were going to close a deal and the guy's like, I want to open up the check. He does not want to open up a check. And he was going in between and like whoever the guy was, might've been a CEO, RJ, Nabisco, somebody, he tore up the check and said, tell your boss to take this. He's like, oh shit, I got to close this deal in 24 hours. You got to raise a hundred million bucks. You know what I mean? Or something, wow. some big thing. I was, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was in a similar yeah. situation. Like I had to raise $8 million, which was like a lot for me at the time. And I didn't have it. And I had to like basically swallow my ego and dial for dollars. And he gave me the pet talk and, it, and yep. the deal went through and made a hundred percent return. And, and I was like, thank God I talked to Dan Blazarian's dad. You know? Yeah, no because kidding. He's, 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 he's the nicest guy. He's the nicest guy. Okay. I, I always wondered what he was like. Cause he's, you know, once again, I'm i I'm um 
of, you know, a geek of financial history. So guys like that, you know, they're, you know, people you only read about, right. Um, you know, like a Boski or, a, you know, that kind of like those guys were brilliant. Yeah. You know? He's a brilliant guy and he's addicted to doing, he loves business and he loves doing deals and architecting deals. I mean, he's a, he's a, he's a really, really nice guy. And Dan, like Dan, like uh, people don't know this, but like I, I knew Dan from playing poker, but I, w- I went to the, like this, uh, this, thing called choice in the desert which was like a large group therapy class where you basically go and cry and, and get your shit straight right <laughs> and so and, and part of the part of the 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 kool-aid is like you get other people to go and i talked to dan i was like hey here's my experience this is you know what i got out of it i think you would go you know i i, I think you get value about it he's like yeah i'll go and we became best friends from that and then, oh that's cool that's cool. That's, he, that's, you know, you, you get the you know, the brash. You know, I went through SEAL training twice. You know, broke my leg in the first one twice, guy. I don't give a fuck. You know, I fuck a billion girls and blah, blah, blah on the Instagram. But he's really I, a sensitive, thoughtful guy of integrity. I see. I didn't even really know anything about him. And then uh, Ray said, you know, Dan Bolzerian. And then I went, wait, that's, uh, you know, his father's name is Paul, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. Silzarian's son and I was like wow that because that's like a one of the you know one of the cool characters from the history of finance right I, I didn't know anything about the Instagram well, page, at the gate. he's in that book too right like you know with the uh, H Ross Johnson and uh you know that that LBO yeah. that was you know I, I watched the movie the movie was yeah you know but James Garner was was a, a classic um <laughs> anything movie I read the book that was it was great though yeah yeah, well, I, I'm a James Garner fan from the Rocker File days, so. Back <laughs> <laughs> when TV went off at night. <laughs> All right, cool. So, uh, exactly. JJ, any more questions yeah. for uh, for Bill before we jump into the listener questions? No, no, no. All right, cool. So, we're, uh, yeah, so Bill, we're hopping to the listener uh, question segment, and then we're going to wrap this up. And uh, so, just a reminder to the listeners that you guys, um, we, we encourage – you know, listener questions every week, uh, funny ones, serious ones, whatever. Get those in every week. Um, so the first one comes from uh, at the Thirst Lounge. Um, shout out to the Thirst Lounge. Uh, what inspires all of Bill's philanthropy? Um, I, I think I think it comes from my dad. Um, you know, my dad was scholarship to the University of Iowa got out, played pro football for beat back in the leather helmet days, then was a public defender. And, you know, to like, as a kid, my annoyance, he knew like everybody was helping people and, and, and did things, et cetera. And he, he just instilled a sense of like do better and, and helping people out and where you came from. And he's from a different era, right? Like my dad was born in, I guess the forties, late thirties, you know? So it was, he didn't have the opportunity set that I had, you know, coming out right back when discrimination was legal, <laughs> you know what I mean? And things like that, right. Pre-civil rights and all, all this other stuff. And so he was a hard, hard dude, but he was also very much into like taking care and giving back. And so, um, you know, I've been, you know, people say, Oh, you're successful, but like I, I was geared for success, right? I have two college educated parents. Um, I'm born in a period where, you know, you could be successful in relative peace. I didn't get shipped off to war or anything like that. And so, you know, I give a nod to that 
and realize that, you know, my role on this planet uh, to have an instant lasting impact is through my kids and through my philanthropy and to make it better. And, you know, we all got a part to play. We're all and I'm searching for my part, but, you know, where I can and within my priorities, I, I try and make it better. You know, and some of that, which you see in the Thirst Lounge or some of these prop bets is actually if I can change people's minds or their perception, I have more leverage than me actually doing right. something. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. The Dalai Lama does more in a tweet than I can do mm-hmm. in like 10 years. You know what I mean? Because he has reached into people's minds and, and changes, you know, changes their perception about certain things. And so sometimes in these prop bets where you see these health bets or whatever, it's like I'm looking at the ripple if this guy wins. Right. On this health bet, how he's going to affect everybody right, else right. around him. No, that's, that's, that's a great, his a great way of looking at it. Uh, and shout out to the Thirst Lounge uh, for the question. Um, next question is from at Tarrant Best. Uh, this may have already been discussed on the podcast, but how did you get the capital to start investing? Um, I, I, I earned it. Right. So, you know, as a trader, I got, you know, you get a deal, you get a percentage like 15 or 20 percent, depending on your sharp ratio. And, um, you know, I, I made, you know, my course is sent tourists, my trading profits over, I don't know, five years over there was like a billion bucks. I made like a billion and something, not including fines. So that's where the money came from. <laughs> so like, you know what I mean? I made more than IBM trading. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so I got a percentage of that. You know what I mean? And that's where the money came. And then I fucked it off gambling and making movies and doing shit or whatever. And then I traded some more and made some more money. And then I fucked that off. And then I yeah. traded some more and made some more. You know what I mean? Like that's that's kind of how how it goes, right? Yeah. And so that's where the Beautiful. money came from. You know, trading. And and uh, and folks. That is one of the most honest answers you will ever hear. Um, most of these guys, you know, seriously, most people are very, very, you know, uh, close-fisted about that sort of thing. So I really appreciate. Yeah, that. and to be clear, the billion bucks is not mine. That's what I made for trading, right? Then I get a percentage. Exactly. That's a Tarrant best for the question. Um, next one's from at Flow Junkie three eleven. What is the best argument that Bitcoin can actually increase in long-term value uh, above, say, a floor of 25K or um, other than just market madness? Yeah, I think I type back on that one. It's inflation. I mean, I'm not really the big, you know, there, there's I, 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 number one thing I think is inflation and people trying to get up. Like, if you're in Venezuela, right, and your currency is collapsing, what are you going to do? You're going to buy Bitcoin, right? You can buy paper clips. It doesn't matter what you're buying. As long as it's, it's something that still moves around, it's better than your currency as it's collapsing, right? And so in terms of dollars, I think inflation is like one of the risks if the dollar collapses for any reason um, that's out there. Then I guess the secondary reason from my perspective is that just adoption, like I, I see a lot of people use it for moving money around, right? And, you know, you have a lot of attackers saying, well, it's 30% this or 30% that. I'm like, if you go to the mob and you say, hey, I want to move this money, they're going to charge you 30, 40%. <laughs> so, so like, you know what I mean? And so, like, you know what I mean? Like, people trying to get money out of this country or that country, whatever, 30%, you know, is no big deal. That sounds like a bargain to them. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, people like, you know, thinking of the way people's like, wealthy people move money and art and gold and diamonds is like 
you know, people are like, well, why are you buying gold? How much, how much gold can you carry with you? Can you swallow a gold bar? They're like, no, I got to get diamonds. I'm like, okay, how many diamonds can you swallow? Now you're like, well, I got a piece of paper or something memorized in my head and I can walk around with $500 yeah. million in my head anywhere. That's pretty useful to the people. And I think that exactly. is not going away as long as people keep accepting it as secure and usable. The, the, the wider adoption of like it's worth twenty five thousand, and you know, is it, it's really a demand for the product. It's just simple supply and demand. Yeah, will people believe in it and adopt it and use it? And that's a question I stay away from. I, you know, there's people like, yes, it's going to be this and whatever and blah blah blah. And I have other, you know, get Norrell, uh, the Nobel Prize winner, saying it's going to zero. Yes, yeah, right. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So yeah. I, I stay out of it. Like when when it went up to seventeen thousand, I sold out or whatever, and I was just like, it, it seems too far, too fast. But you know, we'll see. But in meanwhile, I can tell you, people are, you know, I have a so at the Triton Poker, I, you know, I have people who donate to charity, right? And they're like, oh, can I send it to yeah. you in Bitcoin? I'm like, well, yeah, I, I'll take I, Bitcoin. So people are using it, you know. Right now, this day and age, people are using it. You know, they used to use Roman, um, what was it, lira or Roman coins. They don't use Roman coins anymore. Like, yeah. it could go to lira, well, right? And, you know, and now they got rid of stock certificates, so you can't even pull up a certain. Yeah, one, yeah, you, you can't know. move. You can't move anything. So, like, yeah. would you yeah. rather deal with the mob who might rob you or kill you or whatever? <laughs> you'd rather deal with Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah, now, yeah, now, yeah, Bitcoin, I was, uh, you know what I mean? It's what I was telling the JJ. Like, I, I believe, and I, you know, I don't know this for sure, but I, I think poker players might be the biggest like adopters um of like cryptocurrency in general uh just because of the ease to move it especially like you know countries um or yeah the ease of moving money and like i got into like almost a fist fight with a border agent in canada like just recently. <laughs> I literally like i i the guy first of all i like just i i'll rant on this like my, my girlfriend is the exact opposite like she avoids conflict whatever i'm like bring it on motherfucker and so like <laughs> The guy pulls me out. He clearly racially profiles me, right? He just grabs me out of the thing, brings me into secondary screening. He asks me, do you have over $10,000? I'm like, no. Why? Well, not over 10000 US, and it was in Canadian. So he counts it, and yeah. I'm like an inconsequential amount of money over the fucking Canadian limit, right? Whatever. And he's going through, like, my medicines. He's like, you need to have a prescription here, whatever. And I'm like, I'm fucking just like, this is like, I'm giving the face. He's like, what's wrong? I was like, yeah, you, he's like, I'm just doing my job. I'm like, not just fucking doing your job. You just like, you, you targeted me for a reason. My assistant's there with me. She's like, oh shit, what's going on? So the guy's like, whatever. And he's go. like, I'm like, dude, you're messing around. He's like, I could have you arrested for this, whatever. And I'm like, fucking arrest me then. What are you going to fucking do? Let's go. <laughs> like, whatever. And he's like, I don't know how to deal with this guy like this. Like, he talks to a customs agent in a foreign country this way. He's like, who the fuck is this dude? The other guy comes over, there's two agents going, they're going through my shit, and I'm just like, whatever, count it out, they count it out, they go in the fucking back, they put it in, they like count it. I'm like, I'm not fucking counting, she's gonna count it. I can't count. Because I get ADD and I can't count. And so she starts counting it, we're arguing, I'm like, yeah, whatever. I was like, you guys are fucking asshole. Like, I'm telling this guy's an asshole, custom agent. Anyway, long story short, you know, the guy's like, they can waiver it, right? The guy has discretion. Like, it, was a, yeah. it was an honest yeah. mistake. I did try to hide the money. I pulled it out of my fucking pocket, whatever. But he's yeah. just like, it's too late now. I've gone too angry. I've gone too angry black man on him already. And so <laughs> he's going to fucking charge me the $250 and give me the fucking mark on my fucking thing where they always bring me in for such a thing because I know how it works. So I'm fucking yeah. livid. And I'm like, 
loud and like this guy. I'm like, yeah, you're really good. You're a real fucking hero. Like you're a hero guy, but whatever. I was like, I know people too. Don't fucking come to the States and whatever. The whole secondary screening is looking at me like, who the fuck is this dude? Why aren't we throwing him in the jail or under the jail? And I'm like, you can send me, but then you're going to have to go to court and I'm going to know your fucking name. You know what I mean? I'm going to know who you are then. Like, and you know, and they were just like, I, I, this is funny because I, I have buddies who, who work for customs doing that, and I can just see them dealing with you. I, I can just name. see. I only know what the badge, but I was like, you show up in fucking court, I'm gonna know exactly who you are. Oh my god! <laughs> and so they were just, like, they were just like, fuck it, let's just find this fucker and get him the fuck out of here. <laughs> Why am I telling that story? Because if I had Bitcoin, it wouldn't have been a problem. <laughs> Yo, I like this part of aggressive Bill Gates. All right, man. <laughs> it's so funny. I was so was, angry. I, I got so triggered yeah. out of being racially profiled. Um, I just fucking ape shit. Yeah. Call my turn. Like, Let's go. I like fucking court. Let's go. I, I live in court. <laughs> Remember no Danny DeVito and you know? Yeah, that's great. That's great. Oh man, you got to do better. Shout out than to Flow Junkie Three Eleven for the question and bringing that story out. All right. Um, question. Next question from at Kevin Shelton. Uh, what is more fun, figuring something new out in trading and it being successful, or watching people work hard to win crazy prop bets? Ooh, uh, I'm gonna have to go mm-hmm. with the puzzle. I'm addicted to puzzles. Like. I, I haven't had a chess lesson. I'm supposed to get a chess lesson from Lawrence Trent. I just learned by doing, but I love the fucking puzzles. And now my girlfriend's like, will you get off the fucking phone playing chess? You know what I mean? So, <laughs> I mean, I do. There are some prop bets that are more fun than that, like watching people, like watching the man overcome uh, or the woman overcome extreme odds, right? That level of discipline and dedication, that there's something um, satisfying about that, even when I lose. I like it when they come really close, but then they lose. But there's something satisfying about that, but I'm a puzzle addict. All right, cool. All right, shout out to Kevin Shelton for the question. Uh, Next question is at uh, from SM Wembley 14. Uh, I'd like to know when Bill realized he made it. Oh, wow. Well, there was a false one when I was like, I remember I made like got up to like 30 something thousand dollars a year and i was like i fucking made it i make more than my mom you know what i mean like my mom and i was like i am fuck- I, like i i was walking around like a fucking peacock you know what i mean uh so uh you know but i i had a goal of like being a millionaire before i was 30 and i made it and um I was like, you know, I sent my mom some money and I finally confessed to a sin as a kid. So my mom had this Toyota Celica, right? And I got my driver's license at 17. My friend Pete didn't have a driver's license. He goes, let me drive. Let me drive. It was a stick. So I take him out in Newark, New Jersey, in this area to go drive the car. Of course, you know, he hits the gas. We're supposed to hit the clutch. We spin out and we hit the back of the car on a telephone pole, like one of those wooden telephone poles, right? It browns it up and scrapes it. It looks like Somebody scraped it. And I'm like, fuck. And so I'm like, Ma, I don't know what happened. I came out. We went and got a slice of pizza. And I guess a truck came by and threw the fucking car. And fucked up the trunk or whatever and the whole thing and the insurance and whatever. And, you know, I lied to my mom. And then finally, I fucking paid for the complete value of the car and confessed that 
I let Pete drive the car. I was trying to give him a driving lesson and I fucked up a car. And that's when I made it. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> my mom was like, I always knew it was kind of strange, whatever. Like, <laughs> so that's what I finally fucking made it when I can confess oh, to that and pay yeah, my Well, no, that's good. It's fitting. Uh, you know, the, the name of our uh, podcast, Confessions. Oh, of uh, so. <laughs> yeah, that that was a confession. Right. 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 Um, yeah. uh, shout out to SM uh, Wibbly fourteen for the question. Um, last question comes from at M Trading Media. Um, uh, you mentioned you created the Thirst Lounge. Uh, what exactly is the short term and future goal of this project? So um, the short term was just to give well, I guess 10 people a shot and see what they do. We always have this experiment and I've done it before. I've given people like internships or hired them as assistants to give them a shot. And it's, can you take somebody from the 95%, the hustlers and the doers and move, uh, I mean, 95%, the people who are just kind of apathetic or don't have a shot and move them to the 5%, right? Kind of that thing. Like if, if they had the opportunity, will they shine, right? What will they do with the bankroll? What will they do with the access to the media? What will they do? You give them a blank slate and the opportunity, what will they do, right? And then just see what happens and see what's entertaining. You know, very, very loose guidelines. Like this is a poker, entertainment, travel, lifestyle show. Um, And that was kind of like the short-term thing. It's like, here's an experiment. Let's see what happens. We don't know what it's going to be. And now that I've seen it and out there and I'm feeling a little bit liquid, I, I think I want to hammer it next year and up the stakes, right? So now guys have like a 20K bankroll and some extra Benny, some tickets and tournament tickets, et cetera. Um, I think I want to up it to 100K bankroll and add in some travel aspects mm-hmm. and really like try and jam a, a like a network, you know, like a poker themed risk entertainment network all across the globe and 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 get some killers in there who will, you know, who can handle that bankroll and can also entertain. So I'm, I'm, I'm you know, it's not completely fully formed, but it, it's not going away. And I'm thinking big now. Now I really want to take risk and get involved. Like I'm going to be part of the experiment in right, terms of like, right. giving oh, also, I, uh, I definitely would love to see that. I'm sure others would as well. So good, good luck with that. And uh, shout out to M trading media for the question. Um, so yeah, that's going to, uh, wrap up today's podcast. Um, Bill, any final thoughts, um, or, you know, plugs you want to get in? No, I mean, um, you know, the book is going to come out when it comes out. It's a little early, right? So we talk about that, like tune into the thirst lounge and, you know, check me out on Twitter. BP at, um, what am I, BP22? I'm BP22 on Twitter, and uh, I'm Bill Perkins on, on Instagram. Just check me out. Um, that's my plugs. Um, come debate me. I like debating. I, I, I You know, if there's, a, if there's a reasonable debate, I like to debate. And it's not necessarily between you and me. There's, a, there's like a universe that's watching us, and maybe we'll affect people and change people's minds or at least enlighten them that we can have reasonable debates. You know, that's one thing I like to do on Twitter. And if you have any awesome. other questions, I'll be awesome, happy to Awesome, Bill. Back really on appreciate you um, for coming on. Oh, um, JJ, any final thoughts? Yeah, I'm just really grateful to Bill for coming on. It's really, really nice uh, speaking, you know, to the legends of, of uh, you know, the, the history of finance and guys who have been there. And 
Um, you know, what you read about in the headlines, you know, the, the people who are actually behind the scenes pulling the levers. And uh, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And uh, also, you know, your, your insight into Paul Bazarian and, and how he helped you. Also, I'm really, really grateful um, about the book. And um, that was really eye-opening for me because, uh, you know, I often offhandedly say, you know, I haven't had a vacation since 95 and it, it took me dying to actually take three weeks off. But, uh, you know, when I think about it, I kind of sound nuts. And then when I, <laughs> you know, I, I, I met you now and, and I'm reading, you know, thinking about this book, it's, it's, it's very impactful, especially to someone like me. So I'm very grateful for that. Thank yeah, you so thanks, much. Thanks for recognizing that. Yeah. My, and my aim is to save people's lives, right? Like there's one way to save lives, right? At yeah. the end of their life, like try and get them to live for six months. But there's another way to save people's life is not to waste uh-huh. the fucking hours uh-huh. and days. Sure. And, um, you know, and I say this, you know, not, not to like kiss ass or anything like that. And I know I speak for a lot of people, but like, you know, no, keep, keep spreading like your message, your philosophies and all that. Um, seem like a very like honest, ethical person. And, uh, we all appreciate that. And so, uh, thanks for joining us today, Bill. And, um, for JJ, uh, for Bill, for myself, uh, that's a wrap. All right, listeners. Peace. All right. All right. Thanks. Peace out. Have a good night, everyone.